Maybe that's a feeling of agitation caused by the presence or imminence of danger. Why do you think people believe in ghosts? Perchance, for interest's sake, a deadly game? To the game. Gentlemen, do you see these file folders? Discipline reports. Lots of them. You see, sir, we kind of have this monster club. Monsters are not real. You guys missed me! Oh, Rocky. Rudy saved my life! Yeah, what the hell's Monster Squad? It's us! We're the Monster Squad! Good and evil are in constant flux back and forth. Only once every hundred years are these forces balanced. And what about the amulet? That's the stroke of midnight. The amulet becomes vulnerable. And at that moment, it can be shattered. Ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to Inside Movies Galore. I'm your host, David Stregge. Uh, what? 
I am turning this ghoulish film that we are doing tonight over to Dane. So why don't you uh, tell us what we have in store for the lovely ladies and gentlemen out there tonight. Well, lovely ladies and gents, tonight's movie is Monster Squad from 1987. Um, and it was... Uh, Interestingly enough, co-written by uh, Shane Black on top of uh, being directed by um, whatever his name is. Uh, Decker. Yep. Yep. And uh, the synopsis is a young group of monster fanatics attempt to save their hometown from Count Dracula and his monsters. Pretty straightforward and... Tells you exactly what it's about. Um, well, you could, put it another, you could put it another way, too. It's basically the Goonies fight the Universal Monsters. So, right. I've, so I've heard people say, um, I like this a whole lot better than the Goonies, though. Um, well, yeah. The, uh, yeah, but here's... Uh, okay, so first of all, obviously, spoilers everywhere. Um, and uh, I wanted... To, I had never actually seen this movie before uh, tonight. It... Um, was one that I had always wanted to see because I heard so many great things about it. Um, and I wanted to host because I have seen a lot, all of the great, you know, old school uh, Universal Monster films. And those are some of my favorites from childhood. So I could, you know, relate to these characters here. And uh, just for my first impressions, you know, overall it was... Uh, you know, very faithful to the the uh, lore of those creatures, you know, without, uh, you know, obviously they can't, uh, because it's TriStar, they couldn't use the exact likeness of the Universal Monsters, but they did a good job with recreating as much as they could. Um, but I'll, uh, that's a decent place to uh, set some kind of foundation, but let us hear from some other people about what they thought. Uh, let's hear what uh, Jake thought. Um, I'll be honest, I, this is a movie that I'm not sure what my history is with it. I feel like I saw probably bits and pieces of it when I was a kid. Um, I probably did see In Whole and Part in the early 90s or even earlier. But I have no clear memory. I feel like Raymond put this on a couple of years ago for Halloween because it looked really familiar, and I feel like maybe that was why. But I don't remember for sure, and I forgot to ask him. So this is the one time I know for certain that I watched it, <laughs> but I don't think it's the first time. And I do have some grounding in those old Universal movies. I have seen Dracula and Frankenstein and. Not to mention the old uh, Abbott and Costello monster movies were a big part for me when I was a kid. So there's a, a little bit of the stuff they built on to, to deal with there. Mm -hmm. um, Katie, do you concur? Uh, yes. I And for me, this was not a first-time watch. It was my pick, actually. So, um, But... I did not see it as a kid. I was a Goonies kid. I saw the Goonies. So it's like seems like a lot of people is like one or the other. And I was not a Monster Squad kid, sadly. But my daughter um, is a Monster Squad kid. I believe we showed her this before we showed her the Goonies, if I'm not mistaken. So that was actually my first introduction to the film was when I was showing my daughter. And um, she liked it. 
and she didn't really have a, a big frame of reference for the Universal Monsters. Um, so even without that, she still enjoyed the movie. And, and I think she had some sort of general understanding. It seems that these characters are kind of just in our general understanding of, of folklore, um, as at least as Americans. So Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so she had that going in, which was good. Um, but overall, I think it's a really fun movie. Um, it's some great classic, like, late 80s, almost early 90s, some of it feels like. I feel like it was a bit ahead of its time. Um, but yeah, I, it was a great, I thought, a great pick for this month, so I'm glad it got voted in. Absolutely. Uh, Dustin? Oh, yeah, I, I love this movie. Like, it's just so great. Uh, I first saw it, I first saw, I think, about two-thirds of it, <coughs> excuse me, about two-thirds of it when I was, like, uh, I want to say 10, 11, something like that. Like, it was on TV one day, and I missed, like, the first 20, 30 minutes or so, um, but I remember it was like, wow, this is awesome, What the, what is this? And I didn't know it was called The Monster Squad until a few years later. And I didn't necessarily grow up with it like a lot of people do. Like, if you go to, um, if you look at a lot of, like, interviews, um, or just hear, like, people that work in horror, like, directors, actors, like, a lot of them love this movie, and it's pretty easy to see why, especially if you saw it, you know, as a kid in the 80s, so. Mm -hmm. um, And, I mean, I I have, like, just nothing but love for this movie. (laughs) Yeah, it's... Uh, well, so it's funny that it's funny that like, well, because I didn't grow up with this or the Goonies. Um, you know, a lot, a lot of those like kind of childhood milestone live action films. I'm not talking about animation, but um, from that generation, I didn't grow up with them. But I did grow up like the kids in the movie. I did grow up with the actual old school monster films uh, from Universal from the classic period so I think that's kind of an interesting parallel there but um, David first impressions well I first saw this um, probably early 90s uh, and I, I, I saw bits and pieces of it, uh, of it in the early 90s and then of course I think TNT actually uh, put it on a, a couple of times then, but I actually went and picked this up uh, maybe, uh, maybe uh, 20, uh, maybe 15 years ago. So, um, uh, it is a classic in my mind because of how old it is. I like, I like the concept of, uh, of a club. I, 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 I really do because when boys get together when they're very young, it's something to do, especially for the oddball people, you know. Yeah, which um, outside. Yeah, and that's um, this. I guess kind of transitions a little bit into we can kind of probably get through characters pretty fast just because they're rather archetypical of this kind of film in this time period but um just to start off one thing that i noticed was that you can definitely tell when this was made in terms of like you have the kids on their bikes unsupervised with the flashlights going to look for monsters and you always have the little ones who want to tag along and the older kid who's you know about to enter high school and is starting to get too old for this kind of stuff but is 
still not quite there yet, and, you know, you have to have the tough kid, the fat kid, the, you know, the little girl, or in this, you know, or the, the teenage girl that doesn't fit, you know, all those standard archetypes there. Um, but, uh, you know, you can definitely tell that it's a product of its time, but, um, yeah, the, the characters themselves are not really all that deep, and they're not really meant to be, but uh, anybody agree or disagree with that? Yeah, I think in terms of, uh, you know, that kind of club atmosphere, that it, it reminds me a lot, too, of, like, Little Rascals, mm-hmm. uh, that same kind of idea, and I think they do a great job in this one of kind of nailing those archetypical characters, but I also noticed... Um, watching it well and watching it the first time through even as a mom kind of like screening it for my kid a little bit well she was watching it with me so I guess I wasn't screened that well but just noticing some of the language like very still very 80s with some of the things that they say and you know like the fat kid like (laughs) kid <laughs> yeah, well, there's um, that that is interesting you bring that up because not only um, is it uh, some of the things that don't quite, I mean, it, to a certain degree, they're kind of universal as far as like boys doing what boys do and you know doing you know things with other boys, you know that that'll never age. But like the um, and the uh, homophobic slurs and the right. fact that you know the women don't really have a a place in that in that world, you know, which again, it's it's kind of fitting for that age group, you know, that often happens. But uh, you know, nonetheless, it's one of those things that you can definitely tell that it's a product of when it was made, and plus, the adults that are writing it are have to be at least thirty, and so what does that mean? They're most likely, you know, born in like the the fifties or something. So it's that's kind of why I think you see a lot of those. Um, kinds of relationships occurring in um yeah like their memories their memories of being a kid in like the 60s and 70s well and that's why i think when you see all these movies that uh you know were written by people in the 80s and then they come out now and things are so different you know that people are trying to um have more uh, gender equality and more just recognition of other people's perspectives and stuff. And I think that's why, you know, to a certain degree that uh, people who grew up on, you know, for example, 80s movies are perhaps a bit unsure of how to take that new reality because, uh, you know, the the ball keeps bouncing from generations past. But, um, you know, definitely does fit the time period because well it was of its time but uh that's one aspect that doesn't age well yeah well it feels it feels really authentic um like just the way the kids relate to each other well Well, what's interesting is one thing to go down from that thought where you where you're talking about um people of reflecting that out i think um the way, like, I be quite a bit, and I think there's kind of another side of that coin, whereas some of the people who have a hard time with the new new language and, and equality and way we look at things, I almost look at it as a, a little bit of a, for having to be 
quite so careful. Like, I like the f- being able to be a little bit ridiculous in a way that isn't politically correct. Because a lot of times, that's very funny. And I think um, we've lost a lot of that today in, you know, even to the end, for good reason. But I like, it's like getting a cat that's already declawed. I get to reap the benefits of having a declawed cat without having to do the bad. Kind of that same idea. I get to sort of enjoy a certain time, and it makes it like... Like all in the family, with Archibald. It's never fly today, but it's fun to enjoy something, a product of its time, you know? Yeah, well, it's, um, I mean, that's that's inevitably what I think happens, because unfortunately, um, nuance is not really something that we get a lot of anymore, to where if the pendulum's going to swing one way, it's going to swing all that way. And then if it's going to swing the other way, it's going to swing all that other way. And so, you know, you would get people from times of old that uh, thought it was okay to say anything that they wanted about anybody. And then now the pendulum swung the other way to where, you know, even just the implication of something that was said in the wrong way or to the wrong person or whatever, um, you know, there are going to be people holding you to task, which is... Not necessarily a bad thing, it's just that oftentimes they get a little trigger happy nowadays, but, um, you know, again, that does tell you kind of where we were at versus where we're at now. And I don't know, there were a couple things that were said that I kind of, like, kind of cringed a little bit when I heard them a couple words, but they also generally, the kids were a little, um... I think they got away with language that you wouldn't necessarily, kids wouldn't necessarily get away with in a modern film. Modern film, quite possibly, yeah. Uh, Modern society, I'm sure that they say a whole lot worse to each other. One part part I liked was like when the little girl (laughs) called them all chicken shit. Yeah, that was nice. But uh, another thing, you're talking about nuance, one area where there was no nuance, which very much shows the film as a product of its time, was the whole idea of the adults as idiots, especially that cop's partner. Like, I mean, geez, they, they made the cops, yeah, but they made the cops in last week's movie almost look half-competent. Almost. And I know those cops were definitely a reference to this specific type of presentation, because, again, it's like the whole idea of the kids have all the answers, the adults are clueless, and that definitely was a big thing in the mid-late 80s, definitely. Well, and in the 90s, too, with kids' movies. I mean, I think that was always... That's kind of a trope in a lot of kid, children's films, um, is that the adults never believe the kids and all that stuff. Well, and, and let's call it fun, too. Like, um, like, these cops were at least somewhat serious, so I'm... I'm not really sure where you're getting, uh, aside from Crazy Partner, who's telling all the jokes, I don't, I don't see where you're getting it. Like, I don't, sometimes get them out there, and say, and I'm really a good cop. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he was a little bit over the top, um, but, um, I think what we're trying to get at is that in the last film we watched, Killer Rack, that those police officers were 
well, they're in a much more deliberately absurdist world, to be fair, but they felt like they were two idiots who were trying their very best to be competent, and they, one of them was not that much smarter than the other, but they behaved in such a way that they didn't know that they were dumb, which, or they weren't too over the top about it, which is a little bit more akin to the way that, you know, people who are not very smart, they tend to not know that they're not very smart, and so therefore they, you know, then they tend to behave as though they are very smart, and it's just the fact that they happen to not know anything, so I think that that's kind of what we're getting at, but this guy does feel just a little bit out of place, the partner, in terms of his overall delivery and everything, but, um... He's like Eddie Murphy. Like Eddie to, Murphy was in the movie. Trying to be, but not succeeding. Well, Eddie usually doesn't play idiots. So he, he usually plays over the top, but, you know. Yeah. I'm wondering, I'm wondering, did anyone pick up on the fact that quite possibly the entire movie sort of passed the point where we see, um... Our main boy, I forget his name. Um, but it's clear that his parents are, like, going through a divorce, and he seems to kind of retreat into monsters as a way to kind of cope with, like, his parents not getting along or whatever. Nailed um, it. And, exactly. And there's a, there's a point where he, where it seems like he could be writing the story. Mm -hmm. Is the rest of the movie from his perspective as if he were writing this story, and then does that sort of explain some of the absurd nature of some of these relationships and, and way that, like, like the cops, for example, like, as if it were being told from a child's perspective? That's an interesting point. Um, I thought about I mean, that, yeah. Well, I mean, that often, that kind of goes into the, um, the, and it, this is, it's not done in the exact same way as something like, say, E.T., but, like, you have movies like E.T., The Iron Giant, um, you know, other children's films or films about children that have something fantastical about them, oftentimes whatever the fantastical thing is, um, it's often a metaphor for a child growing up and trying to differentiate and trying to navigate some kind of difficult family situation. You know, most famously was E.T. because, uh, you know, Steven Spielberg was a child of divorce and so therefore, you know, finding a friend that wouldn't go away uh, or would, you know, transcend that kind of stuff um, is what E.T. was all about. Um, so in this case, you could say that regressing into a childlike state and into a um, state of making these kind of fantastical creatures real um, and, you know, having a club and doing, like, kind of traditionally childlike things, even though he's, like, middle school age and is probably, you know, that that perhaps is not necessarily his initial instinct, but... Yeah, well, that's a very tender age that yeah. middle school, you're kind of in between. You're not you're not a kid anymore, but you're not quite a teenager, and you're hovering uh -huh. right in, in that adolescent area. I should know, I have one. <laughs> yeah, and uh, you have the tough guy kid who wears the leather jacket and all that stuff, and he... Yeah. Uh, I got the impression he was definitely, like, at least a little bit older. You know, like, yeah, he was, like, yeah. maybe 15 or 16. He's clearly in a much more precarious position on that level, but he, you know, 
has enough of that escapist uh, drive to want to go along with this. Um, on he top also of just, seems like the whole experience kicks his ass too by the end of the movie. I might. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I, I do think that's a definitely a good uh, thematic reading of the film that. Um, I think a lot, a lot of people would necessarily pick up on the first time, but it, uh, I think it's definitely there. And I mean, that, that does fit in with a lot of those uh, middle school children coming of age kind of movies that the 80s tended to specialize in. Um, yeah, a more realistic example is something like Stand By Me, which nothing supernatural happens in that, but, you know, that's one of like the prototypical films of that type from that period. Anything uh, more about characterization before we get to plot? Because this is well, there, more of a plot-driven film. Well, uh, there. Did you guys notice there were some moments of like? Well, we've kind of already touched on it a lot, but there were some moments of like deeper character depth that were more alluded to than like explicitly stated. Mm-hmm. Um, so the ones that we've already touched on are like the parents' divorce, like subplot. Um, but one thing that always kind of sticks out to me uh, when I watch this is the scene where they finally go and uh, talk to, you know, scary German guy. Mm-hmm. And, uh, like, they find out, oh, he's actually great. Uh, and there's just, like, a little moment where they le- when they're leaving his house. It's like, wow, you know a lot about monsters. I suppose I do. And as he's closing the door, like, you can see, like, his like, concentration camp number. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, wow. Well, yeah, and keep in mind, again, is the, um, you have a lot of films in the 80s that are really treasured. Again, generally speaking, people that wrote them grew up in, say, the 50s, 60s, maybe even the 40s, um, depending on how old they are. So, like, that's generally the window of reference that we're talking about when we talk about those kind of films, plus the fact that people who did survive... Uh, World War II or the Holocaust or, you know, those different, that time period, that they would have still been alive. And, you know, but it's just, again, that's something that, you know, if you would have said, oh, crazy German guy, you know, especially like immediately following World War II, that would have been like a pretty raw memory. And in this case, it's kind of a carryover from that kind of mentality. Um, Mm -hmm. but But on a more universal level there does tend to be at least one weirdo in any neighborhood that the kids are like they make up stories about and you know look no further than like home alone you know for the old man who supposedly is a killer and of course he's nothing like that but um yeah children's imaginations will weave all kinds of oh yeah and it's uh, yeah and it, it is a trope uh, i was just speaking to you how even, like, characters that don't necessarily have that much to do throughout the entire movie, like, everybody gets some additional layer of development, um, Mm -hmm. whether, like, it's just, like, a quick, subtle moment like that, where you have to kind of intuit everything from, like, that one moment, or, you know, maybe we get, like, a couple minutes of, you know, like, the parents, like, fighting, and we kind of see, like, what they're going through. So there is, there is more to the writing in this, um, then it seems at a glance was, I guess, the point I was trying to drive home. Which yeah, well, I mean that that is good writing when you're talking about an ensemble piece like this. It's and it's also not 
ever going to be a character study because it's not meant to be that. But within the, those confines, I think this does what it needs to do in terms of you believe, you believe these people exist and yeah. like how they would react to situations. So, Jake, what are you saying? Well, as far as character, and, and again, I agree, that was a pretty effective little scene. And the whole thing with the parents' divorce and whatever did add some some level of layer there. Um, I liked, uh, as far as the characters of the, the monsters, though, I think it'd be interesting to talk about some of those. Uh, uh, particularly Frankenstein's monster, I thought was a very cool character. Um, that was played by Tom Noonan. Uh, which, uh, it, it, <laughs> the cool parts. Tom Noonan has been in a lot of good stuff over the years. He was this, a manhunter. What's that? He was in Manhunter. Yeah, I was going to say, this would have been the year after Manhunter, or two years later, I don't remember, where he played, of course, Francis Dollahad in that film, and he did a great job. But this is, he usually plays villains, often very creepy characters, so it was really neat seeing him play a character that you would think they'd be really afraid of, and he bonds with the little girl, and they're like best buds, and it was mm -hmm. I, the way they did that. That was so cute. Like that was that was such a highlight. Well, the um, just for reference, so um, in James Wells Frankenstein from 1931, you had the famous scene where the monster bonds with the little girl and accidentally drowns her, and you know that's a pretty big emotional focal point of his character there. And here they do allude to that, but um, they go the opposite direction. Where he learned he his makes, lesson this time. Well, he makes friends with her, and I, I'll just also be honest, um, you know, James Wells' Frankenstein is, of course, a classic and iconic and all that stuff. I, as a fan of Frankenstein the novel, I've never been a fan of the monosyllabic, uh, you know, single word monster, which is what everyone knows, um, because the monster in the novel starts off that way, but he becomes a, like, genius level, uh, you know, in, and very well-spoken, you know, beautifully spoken, um, he has th that kind of intellect, um, but, uh, as far as the more single word Frankenstein's monster goes, uh, I think this was one of the better ones uh, that wasn't Boris Karloff, but um, you know he, he he was able to speak speak more frequently than other ones I've seen, and he was able to emote. Yeah, and it and it did fit the overall spirit of the movie. Go ahead. Another one, another reason I think why it worked for me, the more upbeat spin on the character, is I've seen the old Frankenstein, and I think I've seen a few of the sequels, um, but I actually am more familiar with young Frankenstein, so mm -hmm. I'm familiar with that take on the character, which is a slightly more articulate, you know, take on the character, and the, his interaction with the little girl was, of course, played for laughs. He accidentally threw her in the window into her bed, but it was still a more upbeat spin than the original. Um, so, for me, this was probably more reminded me of that, I guess you could say. Yeah. Well, and Young Frankenstein is actually more 
um, despite it being a comedy, it's more stylistically and story-wise, it's still more in line with the original timeline of the Universal Ones uh, than you would necessarily think, even though it is 20th Century Fox and it's a comedy, but it doesn't have to stray that far uh, to make its points, which is cool. Um, if we're talking monsters, um, I think, uh, well, having Dracula as the leader makes perfect sense because he's easily the smartest and most powerful. Um, I think that despite him not being Transylvanian in his accent, um, and not really that much to look at in terms of like what other versions I've seen. I think uh, the actor they got did a fairly good job of being menacing. It was pretty funny to, in the end when he's just uh, plowing through the police almost like he's a Terminator. Um, that was pretty funny. But um, had it and uh, just for the audience's uh, sake, we have Dracula, Frankenstein's monster, yeah, we got a mummy, we got a werewolf, um, or a wolfman, but I don't know if they're... Well, they say wolfman a few times, well, but um, they got that, and we got a gill man. One thing I'd like to say, uh, to say about, about uh, characters, the mummy. Um, I liked uh, the, uh, that part where... Uh, and if you don't know what kind of vehicle that the uh, the, uh, the German and the uh, and the monster squad were actually riding around in, that is actually a duck. I don't know if it's, uh, if it's from the um, you know, uh, the Wisconsin Dells ducks or the uh, or the Boston ducks, but uh, that was an actual duck. Uh, if you know what that is, that's like a half boat, half car kind of a vehicle. So that looked kind of weird. <laughs> Um, but, um, I liked that uh, that part where he kind of became unraveled. Yeah, uh, I, so, I, um, did, I, I did actually, now that you mentioned that, I have two little points on that, one of which is, yes, that was really cool. Um, the, well, um, mummy, the mummy doesn't really do a whole lot in here besides be kind of menacing in a few scenes. Um, yeah. So, I mean, early on, I, I just wanted to kind of touch on this real quick. So, early on, we get a lot of the kids, like, talking monsters. It's like, oh, well, how would you beat, you know, the Wolfman? You know, how would you do this? You know, does this work? Uh, and it, I thought that was pretty great, like, how they dealt with the mummy. And I'll, I'll let you go into it, Dane. Uh, yeah, it's um, the fact that they unravel him and what's underneath there without something to hold it together is just dust. And I think that was pretty neat because they're going for the, the later uh, versions of The Mummy, not the original film with Boris Karloff, but the ones that came after where The Mummy is always bandaged because in the uh, original, he's bandaged for a bit um, and then he bandaged and stays unbandaged for the rest of the movie. But um, the... Um, I think that was cool. The one thing that I was a little iffy on was the fact that uh, the dynamite does not kill a werewolf, uh, and because it wasn't made of silver, and only a silver bullet can kill a werewolf, I guess. Um, the fact that getting blown to pieces doesn't do the job. It's like, you know, and I get it, werewolf lore was around before explosives were readily available to the general public in some form or other, but 
I'm pretty sure, even if it was a werewolf or Dracula or whatever, if you blow it up, I'm pretty sure that it's going to stay dead, you know, but... Well, I thought that was a nice touch. Like, I, I was kind of happy that they did that. It's like, huh, I guess that doesn't work. Well, you, you know, like, they, they had fun with, they had fun with that stuff. Yeah, they uh, did. It just, uh, and, and, it, and it's a werewolf, it's an imaginary creature, you can do whatever you want with it. It's uh, draggable. No, that's, that's one of the coolest scenes, cool. I think, that you just kind of dismiss a little bit. Well, as, well as, a, as an effect scene, it's great. It just, uh, it, to, that's just to me personally, but again, it's with werewolf stuff or any of this stuff, you can really just do whatever you want, so they, uh, they did it. Yeah, it made me think of, um, so I don't know if anybody's ever seen Aqua Teen Hunger Force, but it made me think of, there's an episode where they find a mummy in their attic, and they just like do whatever the mummy wants because it keeps threatening to curse them. And then they, like, find a book that talks about, you know, the curse of the mummy is just that it's really demanding and, like, hard to take care of. Mm -hmm. And they, they literally tie it up and, like, put it out, like, in the trash can on the curb. <laughs> and my, my friend thought that was hilarious. It's like, what's the curse of the mummy? He's really annoying. How do you get rid of him? Throw him away. Genuinely <laughs> hard to uh, master Excalibur, according to Soul Eater. I love that. Um, but I like the part where they were talking about how to kill the creatures, and they all insisted there were two ways to kill a werewolf, but they couldn't think what the second one was. They couldn't agree on it. And it was like, you know, he's, he's, he's like, well, what's the second one? And they all give a different answer. It's like. <laughs> I thought it was the Wolfsbane. Well, that was, that was the payoff for that, when yeah. blowing it up didn't work. Yeah. The other one, uh, that was the whole point of that. The other one, and I've thought about this, is um, just like vampires, werewolves eventually had uh, had a alpha. And uh, uh, so they're in, in along with those werewolf tro uh, tropes, in order to... Uh, uh, in order to uh, turn yourself back into a where uh, 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 to uh, to human form or or a human, you were supposed to eat eat the heart of the alpha that bit you. Interesting. That's totally uh, new to me. Never heard of that. Uh, the, um, it is a troll. The one thing that I just for reference, also in the Universal Monster canon, my favorite was always the Gill Man from Creature from the Black Lagoon, and the Gill Man is in here. Unfortunately, it doesn't get a whole lot to do, which is too bad because they do pretty faithfully recreate him without copying. Yeah, he's, uh, he's basically just a goon in this. Yeah, like, it's too bad. It's too bad. Is, you know, it's too bad because uh, in Creature from the Black Lagoon, he's very, very smart and cunning. Um, but again, he's on his home turf, so it makes sense. But yeah, I was a little sad about that, but that's just because I'm a fan of the Gill Man. Um, uh, I am too, and I thought, um, like, I thought it was almost kind of funny, like how they had to put in so much work to kill some of the other monsters. And the Gilman's like, rah, and they just blast him. And yeah. <laughs> well, and he's not, because he's not super-powered, and that's why, um, you know, if if our heroes in Creature from the Black Lagoon had been better equipped, they would have killed well, him pretty quickly, because he's just a, a creature, that's it. Technically, the Gilman in the original Universal uh, films, he always went after the leading lady. So, so uh, when he didn't go after the lead, uh, one of the leading ladies here, that was kind of strange too. Well, <laughs> he didn't necessarily have leading ladies. 
Well, we had a so, like we had we had like a we had like a five year old girl, which uh, you know, you uh, would hardly use that adjective. The creature has some principles, which is good. I was gonna say, well, and Frankenstein was already, you know, using her for friendship purposes, but. And as they so astutely pointed out, she was a virgin. Yeah, uh, she was. Um, which and I'm a, okay. Just little, kind of, sort of gripe there. Um, kind of, sort of. Um, one thing about that is that they automatically go to the uh, beautiful high school girl to ask that question because they automatically assume that virgin has to mean a beautiful female. Um, but virgin is just someone who hasn't had sex. And so therefore it could have been one of the kids. It could have been, yeah. And, and I mean, if he could teach enough German to like kind of sort of get it right for the little girl, then one of the other kids could have done it. You know, it just, um, well, uh, I, I get that there's a, a gag there, obviously, but the, well, the way it was, the way it was kind of set up, it sort of implied that it did have to be a woman. Uh, it, they just didn't like say it out loud because we get a flashback in the beginning where Van Helsing tries the same ritual to banish Dracula, and they have like this keen girl from the village do it. So it kind of implied that that implied to me that it had to be like that a woman had to read yeah. the chant. And yet, on the other hand, when it didn't work with the high school girl, the first one they thought of was the German guy. And I did think that was kind of funny, though. That was like, well, he's probably not. <laughs> but, uh, but that one joke, just Steve, but he doesn't count. Uh, yeah. yeah. Talking about the weaknesses of the monsters real quick. One, um, and this gets back to the whole idea of some unfortunate language in the film. There's the kid Horace, who's known by everyone as Fat Kid for the whole movie. Um, but he did have one great moment uh, where they encounter Dracula, and he has this, like, you see the light bulb go off, and he goes through his pockets and pulls out a piece of pizza and pushes it on Dracula's face. I was like, yep, he would have a random piece of garlic pizza. Yeah, would <laughs> I like how that like totally fucks Dracula up. Oh like, yeah, the surprise on his face. He's like, "Oh, what the hell is that?" <laughs> Which, uh, you know, I mean, that's good that they were. That's probably the thing I was happiest about is not only did they manage to faithfully recreate the look and feel of the Universal monsters without copying it exactly, because. It's not a universal film. Um, not only that, but they were true to the lore of each of the monsters, and that's why, again, some of them were much harder to kill than others. Um, anything else on characterization? I mean, plot is kind of more or less straightforward, so there's not too much to talk about, but... Uh, um. you know. One, one thing, one thing uh, again, on the monsters, and the ones, they weren't all, like, blanket evil in step with Dracula. You had the Wolfman, when he was human, was trying to protect people, was trying to be good. And yeah, he kind of went about it all wrong, going into a, a jail, a police station, and raising holy hell, but... It was, this kind of feeds into the whole thing of how still, how out of touch with the reality on the ground that the adults were. Because, like, you have this guy who says he's a danger, 
who says he's going to cause trouble, who is going, who is causing trouble in the police station, and they wouldn't lock him up. They decided to treat him like a cornered animal instead of just locking him up. And I'm like, what the heck, you know? Uh, they did that with. They did that with. They did that with Tommy Jarvis, no problem, in, uh, in Friday the 13th Part 6, you know. And he wasn't a werewolf, but uh, anyway, um, trying to think. Yeah, plot's rather straightforward. There's the, only, the big plot device, though, the MacGuffin, I think, is one thing we're talking about, is the amulet. You know, I think that's one of the more unique things that the movie introduces that is not present in any of the universal monster films. Um, but, you know, there does tend to need to be some kind of, you know, world-ending device, especially in movies nowadays that the heroes and villains are looking for, which, you know, that that is something that you do see in this film is some conventions that have only gotten more and more realized with cinema cinema as movies have gone on in terms of structure. Do, how do we feel about the amulet? I thought it was um, kind of... Well, you had to have some way to like defeat like all the monsters like at once. Like There had to be something kind of tying everything together, and I thought that was pretty good, too. Plus, it went back to sort of the old, you know, Dracula versus Van Helsing thing. Mm -hmm. Um... I mean, yeah, it is, it was more, it's kind of hard to describe, because, I mean, it's it's a plot device that you kind of need, um, but that did put, like, an extra twist on it, that there's this thing that can just, like, beat Dracula forever. That's and a huge of character mythology. Um, and uh, kind of turned into Van Helsing, too. It does, yeah. it does raise some logistical issues, though, and some narrative issues. If you're trying to you create a device that destroys all evil, then why did it affect the creature? You know, since he was shown to be very good. Uh, why was it, um, if it's all monsters, then that's unfair to monsters in general. It seems, uh, again, kind of a blanket, all monsters are bad by nature sort of thing. Um he had, of course, the whole thing of just random stuff getting sucked in, fences and all that kind of stuff. And yeah, but it's like, so how, and why was this fence was bad and this car was bad? Is that what it? <laughs> yeah, that was a little convenient. I mean, in terms of writing, well, in terms of writing the script itself is well structured and the dialogue is snappy and you can definitely tell that Shane Black is uh, relying on his uh, lethal weapon action movie um, one-liners to fuel a lot of the dialogue there. Um, Hilarious though, if any one of the kids at any point in the film had said, I'm getting too old for this shit. Yeah. <laughs> Not, uh, they're a little too young for that, but still. That would have been uh, great, honestly. Yeah, but um, you, know, you can definitely tell that um, those that kind of thought process is in there. Plus, you can just count all the, the movies since this time. Um, I, well, it was before this, but especially since of the thing that can stop all the monsters or all the enemies all at once. Um, yeah, that, that whole trip has been 
beaten to death, you know, quite a number of times, even in good movies. But uh, I like that um, one of the plot things is that every hundred years, uh, uh, this evil is, is supposed to uh, like a window uh, and be the window uh, window for uh, uh, this band of freedom fighters to <laughs> to yeah, we, uh, yeah the the. Um, the whole theory there is kind of the same as uh, in, you know, in studies of the paranormal uh, Halloween and a couple other days are supposed to be where the, the barriers between the spirit world and the physical world are at their weakest. So the idea being that there's, you know, always ebb and flow of spiritual, physical, good and evil, um, you know, which is, I, I always think that's an interesting idea. And Amityville uh, Horror, it's 3.15 in the morning. Uh, for, uh, for most people, midnight is the witching hour. So it's, it all mm-hmm. depends on what is the window of opportunity, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. Did you have a favorite uh, monster or a favorite uh, aspect of the plot or writing there, uh, Katie? Um, I really don't have anything to add that hasn't already been added. Um, I think my favorite monster is probably Frankenstein's monster, just because I really did like his relationship with the little girl and his little bogus one-liner. Like, he was a lot of fun, so I really enjoyed him. And there were so many cute moments with them, too. You know, yes. like having, like, a little tea party, or, like, when he gets sucked into the hole, like, she tosses him, like, the... She tosses him scraps, like the stuffed animal, so that he's not alone. Like, I teared up a little bit at that. Yeah. Interestingly enough, uh, dra- Frankenstein's monster with sunglasses on um, in 1993, uh, at least three, might have been sometime after that, but there was an uh, SNES game, The Adventures of Dr. Franken, where... Frankenstein's monster character has sunglasses on because it was the 90s and you got to make Frankenstein's monster cool for the kids, you know. But uh, well, in the 90s, there was a in the 90s there was a game for the freaking Seven Up mascot. That's the right. There was a computer game based on Frankenstein with Tim Curry. So that's I have right. that somewhere. I've never like actually played it, but I've got it. So, there was all kinds of weird stuff in the 90s. Uh, and, and the 80s, too. I mean, both of those, anything was up for grabs. But um, trying to think of anything else plot-wise. I mean, it just it moves pretty efficiently. There's not a whole lot that's uh, extraneous or anything that's too like logically problematic other than what we've discussed. What um, there's so many like great single scenes, too. Uh, my favorite scene would probably be be where, where the, the the one the one youngest kid in the group, uh, at least before Phoebe uh, uh, brought the monster in and became part of it, uh, 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 when uh, the mummy came to his house and his father came in, Amanda was like, "Okay, well, let's see where these monsters are," and then he goes to the closet and he's like right fucking there, and the father doesn't even realize it. Yeah, that was well. I I liked that father character a lot. I was it was a shame that he was only in one scene because he was he was really funny and. uh, Mommy came in my house. Yeah, well, I I thought he was really brother and I. He was really funny because he, um, you know, he 
I mean, that was kind of a scene-stealing moment there just because he's, like, trying to... He's not yelling at the kid at all, which is good, but he's also not uh, happy about having to be doing this stuff, you know. So it's, it, that was a way to do a scene like that that I'd never seen before, which was nice. Because um, he could have just yelled at the kid, but he didn't. He kind of played along with it. But also was impatient, so it's like, look at that, that was nice. If, if you remember in the uh, 2018 Halloween, there's a scene sort of similar to that with the babysitter. And yeah, we're talking about that right away. Like, I wonder if they got the idea for that from this. I mean, because it's such, like, a hugely influential work on so many people that write or create horror. Well, and, and uh, as the ball bounces, as I've said before, now that uh, people in horror these days grew up with... Uh, the Monster Squad, then inevitably elements of it pop up in horror works that you'd see nowadays, like you just I mentioned. Mean, and let's, I mean, obviously, obviously the people, uh, the Duffer Brothers who did uh, Stranger Things, they've obviously seen this because uh, a lot of familiar dynamics there. Um, you know, so it just uh, art influences itself, and they usually usually goes in thirty year cycles. Yeah, and don't forget too, like all of the uh, all of the quotes that this movie gets from it too. Like uh, one thing you'll see a lot is like the main kid's shirt, like Stephen King rules. Like that's that's all over the place. Yeah, um, fat kid, fat kid, fat kid, all Scott Nards. Yeah, well, that, was, that was a fun scene too. Like calling back to like their talks about the monsters. It's like you know, does Wolfman have Nards? You know, and it's like a ridiculous like debate like kids would have. Then they get yeah. attacked by the wolfman. Kick him in the nards! But it doesn't have nards! Do it! Wow! Ah! Wolfman goes down. It's like, hey, it works! I think I was going to with that name. There were so many fun moments like that. And then the kid has the great one line, Creature got my Twinkie. <laughs> and, uh, that, that was my favorite one, just because, well, you know, it was the Gill Man is my favorite, um, number one, and number two, it was one that I haven't heard so many times to death, you know, because, again, like, anything that's quoted can be over-quoted, you know, into oblivion, and luckily I hadn't heard that one before, so I was like, good, that's that's nice. And, of course, anytime you can mention a Twinkie in a movie, that's just comic gold right there. That's a big Twinkie. That's right. <laughs> um, big Twinkie energy. Do we uh, have any favorite effects? or Because, uh, I mean, we're talking about scenes. My which... favorite effect, effect uh, even though I know it was so out of whack, the, uh, whack and the, the werewolf tropes, uh, when, he, when the werewolf was blown up, how they, uh, how they used shadows to put him back, uh, back together. Or... Yeah, that was, that was neat. I, I did think it was funny when he actually did get blown up, the fact that he blows up almost like a sack of flour. <laughs> I think it's important for us to mention that the effects were done by Stan Winston. Yes. Oh uh, shit! No wonder that was so effects good. Artist. Yes, and um, he actually modeled the Wolfman after his own face. Mm. <laughs> <Like Wolfman laughs> looks like a Stan Winston man. <laughs> well, it's uh, kind of like how Yoda was designed after his designer as well. So I mean. It's interesting the creation reflects the creator. Much like how Frankenstein's monster reflects Frankenstein himself. Um, but uh, I, I think probably the least 
the least uh, unique design was probably Dracula himself, but again, they're not really going for anything too unique because it is homage and pastiche after all. But uh, as far as Dracula, Dracula was pretty good. As far as Dracula being menacing, menacing, I was not an entire fan of him as Dracula. I mean, he's not at all the best. I mean, he's no Bela Lugosi or Chris Turley. He's not theatrical. It's just it, it seemed like he, he was like somebody's father who just threw on some makeup and uh, yeah. some fluffy uh, uh, cape and decided to run around at Dracula. You know, Dracula is a difficult role just because you have to have presence and charisma, and you have to really you have to do a lot. Well, you have to command a room in a way that very few people can. I mean. Bela Lugosi could do it, Christopher Lee could do it, uh, Gary Oldman could really do it. Um, you know, there's a lot of great actors that can. It's just, that is difficult. And again, it is an ensemble piece, so I mean, Dracula's not the main focus, and it'd be difficult to do that. But yeah, I mean, he wasn't my favorite Dracula ever, but he wasn't, you know, bad per se. But uh, yeah, I thought it was a pretty good Dracula. So, plus, you kind of had to get, you, you had to kind of have a balancing act between, you know, he's, well, he's Dracula, you know, he does all the things that you mentioned, you know, command the room, you know, be intimidating, but you have to, have to also be able to believe that, like, a group of kids could beat this particular Dracula. Yeah. So, I thought they did a very good job of, like, balancing that act out. So, that's a, that's a fair point. So, and, like, how he constantly... How he constantly was like, they can't do anything to me, and then they just kept, like, proving him wrong. <laughs> you were gonna say something, Jake? Oh, I said, yeah, they couldn't beat uh, Gary Oldman. No. They did have one good moment for him, where I thought it was a fun moment, where he decided to blow up their clubhouse, and then he says, I think it was meeting adjourned, or whatever it was. Yeah, interesting dynamite in there, and he's like, meeting adjourned. It was pretty good. Well, that, that is one thing that this Dracula has over the others, is that what he lacks in presence and menace he makes up for in one-liners and in explosives and the fact that he has a car that can disappear and he you know whatever he throws that energy ball or whatever uh, but that horse is bad ass yes it is it goes through the fucking car that's what he does oh yeah because he goes the hearse goes right through the cop car and then he plows down a fence and he's like, oh, is he selectively intangible and he just didn't like that fence? Or the magic hearse. Give it a... Can do it well, he's probably, probably got an invisible button somewhere. But, uh, you know, I, I think what's well, interesting... I think it's interesting whenever you have Dracula that can use, can use energy projectiles, which is not often, but uh, he, could, he, he could do that here and he could do it in Dracula versus Frankenstein. There Cool. Had one like, other moment with Dracula, where he was, where he was standing, and all of a sudden his face turned into a skull for just barely a few seconds, just like a flash in the lightning. That was cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And I like seeing him surrounded by electricity, which you don't ever see. That's if you see that at all, it's almost always Frankenstein's monster for obvious reasons. Um, but uh, yeah, that, that was a cool visual. Yeah. Dragon Ball um, Dracula was kind of cool, yeah. Yeah, 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 and he did uh, a Hadouken, uh, more or less, the American equivalent of it. Um, 
But uh, I'm trying to think. Anything else that we haven't touched on? Well, one thing I do want to mention for real quick, because uh, it was the thing that caught my attention the most. Uh, it was just the people attached against Stan Winston, Tom Noonan were big ones. It's interesting that most of the kids fell out of acting for the better part of a decade and are now coming back to it. So it's kind of interesting, like, uh, you know, one, one of the most notable roles that, uh, that, that the, kid, the girl had was, um, was a role in Frasier, and I actually remember that episode very well. But the biggest one, of course, being Shane Black, we already mentioned that he wrote Lethal Weapon, but he went on to be, he was building a name for himself as a director, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, Iron Man 3, The Nice Guys, those were all some pretty good movies. So I just think that was definitely one person that uh, is moving up in the world, if you will. Absolutely. Yeah, I want to uh, I want to add some of that too. Um, so he also did him and uh, Deckler too. I think um, they did this year's The Predator. Uh, which did anybody else see that? Yeah, I have, yeah. Too. Uh, it kind of felt. It's, his version of the Predator felt an awful lot like the Monster Squad to me, which I really enjoyed, but a lot of people didn't respond very well to, which I, which was kind of strange. Because um, it kind of felt like a mashup of uh, of like the Monster Squad kids, you know, fight the Predator. It's just they're adults this time, and a lot of them die. <laughs> so uh, you know, what, what be, you, you know, what would be cool is uh, if the kids from Monster Squad would have grown up to join the Ghostbusters eventually when they got old enough. <laughs> That'd be cool. Um, trying to think. Um, oh yeah, I had one more thing. So our, our monster lineup, I noticed, since it is such an homage to the Universal Monster films, um, our lineup was Dracula, Frankenstein's monster, Girl Man, Wolfman, um, and... Uh, uh, a mummy. Um, what we're missing, um, we're missing Bride of Frankenstein, we're missing the Invisible Man, and we're missing the Phantom of the Opera, but, you know, Invisible Man and Phantom of the Opera, they're just guys, they don't have any powers, and then Bride of Frankenstein, I don't think he could have really fit into this, um, but we did get Brides of Dracula, which was nice, because uh, they don't get enough credit for doing what they do. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of worth pointing out, too, because the first time I saw this, um, like, when he, the scene where he creates the brides from, like, those kidnapped girls, like, that kind of bothered me a little bit uh, when I first saw it when I was, like, younger, but, you know, it wasn't, like, a thing this time, because it's like, oh, yeah, well. Well, yeah, I mean, as, as we established from uh, Let the Right One In, there's always at least one either vampire slave, or in this case, vampire bride, you know, which is not necessarily the same thing, but, uh, you know, there is, there's pretty much always at least one. And, uh, and then there's three in this case, which is proper for Dracula, because the novel he has three, and the most movie adaptations he has three. Um, let's see, any, anything else? I wish I could remember his name. Like the older kid really carried a lot of the weight, like in the finale, because doesn't mm -hmm. he? He kills like four. He kills like four or so of the creatures, like himself. Like and arguably is most responsible for stopping the mummy too. 
And you can see he's, like, fucked up by it, too. Yeah. It's, like, taking its toll on him. It makes sense why, because he is the oldest, after all. And, I mean, he's got the most uh, agency in the situation and the most capacity to affect the situation. Um, Which is not unlike what happens in uh, Stranger Things, same kind of thing. The older kids have the capacity to actually do more of the necessary saving of the day, you know, the, the kids do all the discovering and all the hard work, but, you know, the older kids and the adults ultimately have to do the hard uh, saving the day stuff. Um, but uh, if, if nobody else has anything else, I think, uh, you know, we did a pretty thorough job of covering this thing. It's a, it's a good movie. It's uh, definitely yep. one to check out. The only other thing that I, I thought I should mention is the puppy in, in the movie, because I remember when they when they said when they were gathered together and called themselves the Monster Squad, his paw ended up being being over the other hands. I, 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 I was like, that is fucking cool. Oh yeah, and the lines. A line too. It's like, how does the dog get up here? <laughs> that was that was funny. I like those kind of self-aware lines that don't you know break the overall mood of the movie. But uh, I mean, I would be thinking the same thing too. Um, um, I did have yeah. one one quick thing with that too. So um, there were a few, there were a handful of like little things in here that kind of reminded that reminded me of like kind of my childhood too. And like, I had a beagle. That was kind of like that. Um, it didn't like follow us everywhere, but you know, it, it reminded me of my childhood dog a little bit. And uh-huh. uh, plus, uh, there's there's a scene where um, like his dad gets called. His dad's a cop, and his dad get call, gets called away um, to go investigate like the disappearance of the mummy. Uh, and it kind of ruins everybody's night, and so he's sitting up on his roof, the kid's sitting up on his roof, like, watching a drive-in movie through binoculars, uh, and his dad joins him, and, you know, like, his dad went and got Burger King, and he's like, what I miss? You know, and they just kind of hang out on the roof and, like, share some fast food, and, like, we didn't really have, um, we didn't really have a roof that I could do stuff like that on, but after, like, a, after, like, a rough day or whatever, um, usually dad, my dad would bring me, like, uh, McDonald's or something just like that, and we just kind of, like, sit down and do that sometimes, so that was, that was kind of a nice memory that yeah. I'd long forgotten about that, that sort of trip, and I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. Which, I mean, in, in most of these movies that are about, you know, a group of boys getting together and solving a mystery and doing that kind of stuff, like, that was not my childhood because I was homeschooled and was at home a lot and I didn't really have any real friends and, you know, that sort of stuff. So I, I can never really relate to that part of it. But then the big point of difference here is that these kids had grown up with the same movies that I had and, you know, that was nice to see for a change. Um, I do feel a little bit sad for kids nowadays that more more than likely they're not going to grow up with the classics um, the way that I feel like they should. But, uh, you know, maybe through uh, one of these, maybe they can stumble across it one day. I hope so, because I I want those to stay alive. Well, most definitely. I think this was a great send-up to, like, the, uh, the, 
the universal monsters of the 50s and 60s. Just a lot of people think that uh, 80s films are like uh, nostalgic. and Well, they are. They are for that, for our current generation. And, uh, you know, they, the classic monster films are nostalgic for the people that wrote uh, this movie, clearly. And uh, it just keeps building on itself. I just, as time goes along, I just don't want the uh, the old stuff to die out. Um, you know, I don't think it, you have to worry about that, at least not within the yeah. horror community. Um, yeah. The classic exactly. monsters are very much kept alive within the horror community. And that's that's important because, I mean, that no matter what uh, movie gets remade or, you know, gets, you know, whatever happens to it or, you know, whatever new franchise comes along, I mean we can hopefully have the old classics as the bedrock just because, I mean, they are the gold standard for a reason. And, uh, you know, just always want to make sure people remember that. Um, and that's why I want to host tonight. So, yes, um, thank you very much, everyone, for listening. And uh, we might as well, uh, if no one else has anything, we might as well say what everyone is all about. There was, there was one more joke I liked. Uh, so they're in the abandoned house that Dracula's keeping the amulet in, and they're, like, cornered by the Wolfman, the Brods, and Dracula. Like, they're up against, like, a statue, like, in a hallway, and it's like, quick, look for a switch! It's like, what are you talking about? It's like, don't you read the Hardy Boys? Like, there's always a secret passage! That's stupid! And they just, like, start pulling on the statue, and they, like, open a trapdoor and escape. And I, I thought that was pretty funny. Yeah, there's a bit of good self-aware dialogue like that. Helps helps cover up what would otherwise be a convenient, you know, writing uh, aspect of convenient writing. Um, we do see Dracula use the statue, like, a couple of times first. Yeah, we do. And that house has secret compartments and all that. And, of course, the house number is 666. It has to be, of course. <laughs> and they even do... Oh, yeah. One tiny thing. They even do the Alucard is Dracula spelled backwards thing in this, which, yeah. you know, they didn't even really need, but, it, I mean, it is nice that they at least knew about that because well, that originated in Son of Dracula. And that was cool that the kid sat down and uh, and wrote it out like he uh, like he had pulled out his orphan Annie ring, you know, mm -hmm. to uh, uh, figure out, you know, oh, damn, that spells Dracula. <laughs> mm -hmm. but I, was like, I was like, wait. Oh, and I'm sure that, uh, you know, not a lot of people know where that came from, but the writers of the movie clearly did, and they paid a good amount of homage to it. Um, Alright, so I think I'm going to wrap this up. So, uh, who wants to go first? Okay, I guess I'll go first. <laughs> I am Katie Cadaver from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I'm a body-positive horror artist and alternative model. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, Patreon, uh, Twitter, and I'm also the makeup artist for horror punk band Rap at Spider. You can find Rap at Spider on Bandcamp. And uh, you can find me this weekend in Cincinnati, Ohio for Horror Hound. I will be with uh, Troma Entertainment. 
And so stop by and see me. I'm doing a new cosplay this weekend that I'm really excited about. Um, and then I will be next Friday at C2E2 in Chicago. Come out and see me there with Troma again and also with the lovely Lloyd Kaufman. So come out and get your autograph from Lloyd Kaufman and hang out with us. Um, so that's pretty much what's on my agenda for the next couple weeks and where you can find me. Anybody that's going to Cincinnati, be very careful if you have any kind of outdoor allergies whatsoever. That's a very low-pressure city, and if you're anything like me, as soon as you're in there, you're going to feel really sick, and that's why, because uh, that's a bad allergy town. Um, and uh, Jake, you want to go for it? Sure. Uh, my name's Jake. I'm here in Central Virginia, and... Um, <clears throat> Unfortunately, we're all under the weather this week, but could be better, it could be worse. Uh, <laughs> I frequently guest on uh, YouTube channel Symptoms in Versus the World, uh, and since Symptoms are here tonight, I'll go ahead and say it's a channel dedicated to um, media and all other forms. We do uh, reviews, pick up videos, uh, top 15s. We recently did a uh, top 15 movies that were nominated for Oscar but did not win a thing, and some of those are very surprising. Uh, and we unfortunately had been take this week off, you know, as a villainous. But um, I also have my own channel, Kodabuki Jake, which is uh, dedicated to nature and the natural world. And, um, <clears throat> and that's... <coughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> it dies. Um, Dustin? Oh, maybe he did die. Crap. Uh, well, I'm, uh, known on Twitter and YouTube as the Crypt of Horrors, where I show off my vast horror collection. So I'm a horror collector here in Milwaukee. Uh, I have an Instagram, uh, DHR Hunter, which I'll probably upgrade to the Crypt of Horrors as well fairly soon, just to kind of keep the theme going. Um... I am a frequent panelist on here, and I'm also on Pop Culture Weekly, also here on YouTube, uh, with the organizers of the Twisted Dreams Film Fest. So uh, go check us and that out, and come to the festival to see Jeff Bob Briggs, who's awesome. Um, and it's more or less about what I do, so... Sweet. And, um... I, and I'll get saved, David, for last week and sign us off, but I am uh, Dan Kyle, hosted tonight. I'm an independent uh, filmmaker out of Charlotte, North Carolina, and I've got segments of anthology feature films. I've got, like, at least five or six now. I just finished shooting one. Um, I'm going to be starting to write another one, which is just really quick back-to-back. -back. I'm, you know... I'm amazed at how quickly these come to my attention, but uh, one of them is uh, Grindsploitation 7, Clownsploitation, which is on Tromo now, right now, and um, we'll be, I think, getting a Blu-ray release along with Grindsploitation uh, 4, 5, and 6, so uh, that's cool, and then I've got other ones that will be coming out, uh, you know, later on this year, and yeah, there's always always something wacky going on. Not to mention the fact that the uh, 
trailer, the teaser trailer for Asylum Origins Harley, my girlfriend's web series that I directed that dropped uh, not too long ago, so uh, stay tuned for that this August is when we are set to debut it. And uh, David can wrap us up. Alrighty, and uh, my name is David Stringy. I'm a producer uh, from here in Milwaukee, as well as uh, the uh, host, uh, uh, main host of uh, Inside Movies We Are. But, uh, but uh, as you well know, well, we all host the show. So um, thank you, uh, ladies and gentlemen, for listening. And uh, on the same channel that we have uh, been broadcasting on, I do reviews, um, but uh, I will be switching all that over to my new ch uh, ch uh, channel, Delusions of, uh, of Grandeur. So, a um, uh, 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 little bit of news, um, I have begun producing um, a film, uh, uh, a couple of films, uh, for uh, David Sterling. Um, which are coming out, uh, oh, one of them is, is in April, Camp Blood Kills. So uh, stay tuned for that film, as well as Camp Blood 9. So uh, keep, in, uh, keep informed when that will come out, and, uh, and uh, keep uh, checking out some of the reviews that I have out. So uh, thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Hopefully you have a great evening, and everyone for the night. Good night. Good night. Like, share, and subscribe. <laughs> Bogus. <laughs>